the cubicle you've, you're really living in is your story. You're going to go back into an environment at home where everybody thinks they know who you are because you have very carefully created a cubicle that you show everybody. You are a multifaceted spiritual creature that has innumerable facets and faces to you. There is such beauty and complexity in you, and yet you choose to show four faces of a cubicle. And you have created that story of your life and who you are through training. And I would say that's the biggest problem that all of us face in this room is the story that you now tell yourself of what your life has been. It's keeping you in a box. That's the great Zach Bush, back for round number three. And this is the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. How are you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your podcast host. Okay, he's back, people. Today, the man himself, one of the most fascinating, the most popular guests by a long shot to grace this platform, Zach Bush, MD, returns for round three of the podcast. And I got to say, this one uh, is a mind blower. For those newer to the show, Zach is many things. He is the founder and director of M Clinic Integrative Health Center in Virginia. And I know he hates when people say this, but it is true. He is one of the few triple board certified physicians in America with expertise in internal medicine, endocrinology and metabolism, and hospice palliative care. Uh, In addition to his work in functional medicine, longevity, autism, gut health, cancer, the list goes on and on, he is an avid environmentalist and activist involved in a multitude of projects that focus on everything from ecology, uh, soil health, regenerative agriculture, farmer well-being, uh, and spirituality. Uh, Along those lines, I implore all of you to check out his documentary series. It's called Farmer's Footprint. And it takes a look at the impact of glyphosate on human and environmental health, which is something we talked about in our previous episodes. And it's done through the lens of farmers and their communities. Uh, You can view that on Zach's website, zachbushmd.com, or at farmersfootprint.com. US, and I'll put links uh, to those sites in the show notes. I've said it before, but I think it's worth repeating. Uh, In my opinion, Zach is a master healer. He is a master consciousness, a gift to humanity, and somebody I'm very proud to call friend. Uh, After Zach's previous appearances on the show, episodes 353, which was back in March of 2018, and episode 414 from January of this year, two of the most impactful and and moving conversations of my life, uh, we invited Zach and his wife, Jen Perelbush, to join us on our recent retreat in Italy. So today's conversation, which I think you'll find goes in directions quite different from our previous conversations, is a product of that experience. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. 
technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailored fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. 
Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, Zach, Zach Bush, MD. So on previous episodes, we explored everything from the impact of glyphosate on degenerative disease to the importance of regenerative agriculture to what can be done to heal ourselves and the planet we share. Uh, and expanding upon those conversations, today we go in a few new and different directions. We talk about our relationship with pain, both physical and psychic. Uh, we talk about our unhealthy obsession with the pursuit of comfort, the stories we craft that form our identity and, and more often than not hold us hostage, and many other subjects, including some shared experiences from a group holotropic breathing experience that Julie had taken the group through uh, prior to the session, which I think you guys are gonna find fascinating. Uh, like the recent Gemma Newman episode, this was recorded live from our event in Italy, thus audio only, no YouTube version of this. And it closes with Zach leading this amazing meditation. Uh, and I should say that we edited out or truncated some of the long pregnant pauses or extended moments of silence during that meditation, simply for the sake of you guys, the listeners. As a final note, I wanted to add that uh, our retreaters, the people that attended our Italy experience on their own accord, have collectively raised and donated $81,000 for Zach's Farmer's Footprint organization and docu-series, which is just incredible. So immense gratitude. Thank you to all who attended and contributed. If Zach's message moves you to get involved, you can learn more and uh, donate yourself at farmersfootprint.us. Okay, this is a deep one. Uh, again, perhaps a little bit different from that which you've come to expect from Dr. Zach, but uh, I think something tells me you're gonna dig it. Uh, I certainly did. So let's get into it. This is me and Dr. Zach Bush. I've fallen in love with all of you this week. It's been awesome. It's so beautiful. Every single one of you that I've had time to sit and talk with just blow my mind. You're just beautiful, talented, extraordinary human beings that all walked into this week ready to fucking change everything. And that's unusual. And I'm amazed by that. I'm just amazed. I was just telling Rich as we were sitting here beforehand of like, I've talked to people all over the world and all this, but it's unusual to come into an environment where 40 plus people are here to change everything that it takes to be a better you. And uh, it's a really an honor to be here. And I just have extraordinary gratitude to Julie and Rich for including Jen and I in this week. It's a powerful opportunity for us to be human, uh, to show who we are uh, and be vulnerable, as well as uh, learn from the depth that's in this room. Uh, the things that you guys experience during your breathing, the holotropic breathing, is humbling to be witness to that. 
um, not enough humans get to see other humans become buffalo. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's freaking unique, and uh, it's beautiful. And uh, I pulled the whale card, um, and that was an interesting journey just in reading that uh, card. And so uh, these animals uh, are one of my deepest passions as, as the animals on Earth and the devastating effects we've had on them in the last few decades is almost unspeakable. Um, and I'm just so grateful that we can embody that and become perhaps part of a, a higher consciousness where these animals are not only respected on earth, but they be, become part of us and we become part of them. And you guys have embodied that really well, this, some of you more than others. <laughs> well, I think we can all agree that uh, we're very blessed to have you and Jen in our presence. Uh, it's been a gift to just have you here. Um, and to kind of uh, make today Zach Bush Day <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> um, how many of you here uh, heard one of the two podcast episodes that, that Zach and I did together? Yeah, almost everybody. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a joke in our house, the regularity with which I get feedback, like just months and months, you know, after like, I think yesterday somebody, you know, sent a message about it. So it's crazy how much um, your message has connected with this audience. And uh, it's really cool, man. So I want to continue that conversation. What was interesting about what you just said uh, about pulling the whale card, I don't know if you know this, but like two days ago, uh, a giant whale, I think it was a sperm whale, washed on shore in Italy. Really? In Italy. And they discovered about 88 pounds of plastic in its gut. And I think that kind of perfectly encapsulates, you know, it's like it's interesting that you pulled the whale card, you know, with that, because it speaks to so much uh, of what you're about. Wow. That's a little <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, that's very pertinent to what we would like to talk about today, yeah. I think. So. Well, we let, when we last left off, the second podcast that we did kind of ended with this epic monologue uh, that you blessed all of us with, which really kind of pivoted on this theme of, of the cycles of life and, and rethinking you know, what death means and how that impacts how we live our lives. And I thought maybe you could expound a little bit on that since it was so impactful for so many people. Yeah. And that's, that monologue came from you, really. I mean, I, I do want to point that out, that much like the energy that you guys have accomplished this week, what you guys have accomplished in your self-transformations this week have come out of the space that, that Rich and Julie have chosen to hold for all of us to, to be transformative in. And that's why your podcast has become a worldwide best, is because you hold extraordinary spaces for people to to find things in themselves that they didn't know was ready to be spoken. And so you gave me an avenue. And by the time somebody sits with you for 90 minutes, they don't know how they got to where they're at, that's for sure. And so that was a real you know, tribute to what you do, really, uh, more than myself. But that, that moment, I think, is worth, a, a, as a wonderful starting point, is the monologue was based on my experience in the ICU of watching patients die and then be resuscitated and, and give report as to what they just experienced. And it came around to this single line, which was that um, what they experienced, the very first thing they said in their experience wasn't about, I saw the white light, or I saw Jesus, or I saw this or that. 
they all said I felt completely accepted for the first time in my life. And in all of the sessions that I've been in individually with many of you this week, this becomes a theme uh, for each of us, is we don't feel seen. We feel, no matter how much we do or produce, we feel unseen and therefore unrecognized and therefore unaccepted. And we go through all kinds of ridiculous social machinations to try to reconnect and to get some sort of affirmation from each other that we are seen or respected or loved. And it's ethereal and it's a chasing after the wind because ultimately the human mind is no more capable of seeing you each for who you are than it is figuring anything out. You know, the human mind is a very weak agent of conception and a very weak agent of analysis because it works in such a black and white physical plane. When in fact, you know, much of, I think, many people that you work with on your podcast, Rich, are coming to that podcast out of having reached flow state mm -hmm. somehow. And so our athletes are phenomenal at demonstrating what flow state looks like. And that's what you, I'm sure, got into in, in your uh, Chasing Ultra there, is that you're, you moved from a state of disconnect, I suspect, in, at 49 or whenever it was that you were in that moment of crisis and that transformation. I guess I'd turn it back on you for a moment and just ask, what, if in the lens of... Am I seen? Where were you at when, as a lawyer and in that, and not necessarily just seen by the world, but seen by yourself? Like, mm -hmm. what aspects of yourself could you see clearly at that point in your life and, and what was hidden? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, certainly I didn't feel that I was being seen. I was unable to truly see myself other than glimpses of the possibility of what I knew, you know, I could be, I guess, um, but without giving myself permission to inhabit that, you know. So I felt strongly that I was living the wrong life. I didn't have clarity on what the correct life for me would be. Uh, and I definitely, had a powerful sense of, of not only being not seen, but not being able to see myself. And I had to you know, create painful moments for myself in order to compel me to confront certain things about how I was living in order to you know, force me to work through it. In hindsight, do you think there was parts of you you could see clearly? That could see clearly? That you could see clearly of yourself? Was there parts of your character or psyche? Yeah, but or... I think it was clouded by fear, you know. Oh, interesting. Which made it murky. It was too scary to really look at that. Um, but, you know, Julie was incredibly helpful as a support system in helping me, you know, have the courage and the fortitude to be able to not only begin to expand that aperture, but do the work required to walk towards it. I think that is one of the most profound statements that we can all hear is that even the, the parts of us that we can see clearly are clouded by fear, which is so true. I think we are so afraid of ourselves, which is so bizarre that we've been set in fear of ourselves. And 
you know, it brings, I can't remember who the, the famous quotes were that have been around this subject, but, you know, you, you hear the, the, the theme of the thing that you should fear the most is your own power, you know, because you're not connecting to it. And that's the fearful part is, what are you doing disconnected from your power? And do you have a sense where that fear was coming from? What was the origin of fear and all that? Or was it too vague to even pinpoint? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that I can identify the locus of that other than to say that perhaps it had something to do with, with the power being located in a place that was so far askance of my sense of what was socially acceptable for somebody who had had my experience, that the fear had to do with stepping outside of what I knew, even as dysfunctional as it was, to try something completely outside of my comfort zone and experience. That's, that's spot on. And I, and I think we can all relate to that in different ways and that it's, we would rather stay uncomfortable in the knowingness than jump into the unknown. Yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a sort of a common refrain in, in recovery circles, which goes something along the lines of, when the pain of your current situation exceeds the fear of the unknown, that's when you change, right? So that's that thing where, where you know, the pain that you create for yourself can actually be the catalyst for the change that you seek. Not that pain is necessary for that transformation, but it can be a useful mechanism for it. And so it's not always to be avoided, but rather to be understood and leveraged. And I think the pain is perhaps necessary on some level mm -hmm. for change and transformation. And this is what I get terrified as a physician of, and I saw it in spades in the hospice world, which is our dependence and overuse of our narcotics. And so the opiate, uh, you know, stuff and everything else that we're we're on this opiate explosion is dulling pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a barrier to confronting the pain that can be that transformative vehicle. And what if we did that at the end of life to everybody, so you couldn't make your ultimate transformation? Mm. And that terrifies me about our current hospice movement, which is based on pain control. What a ludicrous goal ultimately for us, uh, a species to dull the, the exquisitely developed sensory processing that would suggest pain. And it's interesting that we can have a sensory experience of pain from emotional stress. You know, it doesn't have to be biologic whatsoever. And the Chinese in their 4,000 years of wisdom and the medicine there have done a very good job of showing us where pain shows up biologically is always has a, a, a so, a, an emotional, spiritual underpinning. So to play devil's advocate a little bit, um, as compassionate beings, we don't want to see the people that we love suffering. And if somebody is in that place, nearing the end of their life, what is the you know, appropriate compassionate response that doesn't involve overly medicating? It's pretty people. beautiful. That's a great question, obviously, and critical. And the answer is touch. And human touch is, has an extremely uh, powerful way to reduce pain. And in the same rate at which we've 
started to overuse narcotics and and and, and the whole addiction you know process here we've stopped touching our patients and we've stopped touching our loved ones who are dying somewhat out of just an untraining of what that touching looks like uh, from family members. Um, Cormac McCarthy is one of my favorite authors out there and modern writers out there. And he's so brutal with his simple descriptions of a scene. Uh, And he loves the topic of brutal death and pain and, you know, horrific scenes that he paints. Um, His most benign book got, got the most accolades, which was the, all the pretty horses. Um, but Blood Meridian is worth a read. It's an incredible book. That That one just like is brutal in its depiction of human violence. And what you see depicted often in in it, even I think the beginning of uh, All the Pretty Horses is this stark scene of somebody just died and their, their coffin is in the home for days. And, uh, that was normal back then, you know, that, you know, just even at the beginning of the 1900s, it was, death happened in the home and the family was intimately involved with that. There was a process of picking up the body and wrapping it up. And, you know, it wasn't a sterile process. There was nobody that came swooping in to rush that off to the corner and, you know, all of this. And so there was an experience with death. And not just on the human plane, which you also see in Cormac McCarthy's work is the brutal, you know, death that was happening around them on the farm. You know, there's horses dying, you know, animals, you know, falling into traumatic endpoints and and death on all kinds of levels. We were intimately involved with that for all of history and perhaps most of all in war. And one of the things that terrifies me right now is that we haven't as Americans, been immersed in war in a long time, and I that's it. Let's just pause on that for a minute, because that's a that's a gnarly thing to say, right? I think it is gnarly. I think <laughs> I, I'm afraid that that history repeats itself when we don't pay attention to history, and I'm not the only person afraid of that. Obviously, it's been said by a lot smarter people than me, but. Uh, if we look at World War II as an obvious outspring of World War One, which was an obvious outspringing of some of the wars that were happening in Europe uh, at the end of the, the 1800s, we start to see that there was, again, a familiarity with brutal, brutal violence uh, with war on their soils. Uh, as Americans, we just can't even fathom World War One. Uh, we lost 60,000 some soldiers in, in, world, in uh, Vietnam over a 25-year period. And so if you imagine that and then keep in mind that that had to be done at nearly face-to-face levels of combat where men were within 10 to 30 yards and cutting each other up with machine gun fire, razor wire, explosives literally body parts raining down on each other and uh, being covered in each other's blood and feces and living in each other's feces and this trench warfare that went on for years in the same trenches. Um, You all have not experienced pain. You haven't experienced suffering. You haven't experienced the extremity of what the human mindset and body is capable of receiving and 
witnessing and perpetrating. Yeah. Um, to you know, say one thing about what you just said, there are interesting parallels between warfare and this relationship with death that we have in the sense that what was once tactile and personal in the Cormac McCarthy sense um, has become whitewashed and sanitized. So warfare is no longer you know, hand-to-hand combat in the trench like World War I. It's, you know, it's, it's a shot from a drone or it's cyber warfare from 3,000 miles away that moves you know, economies and impacts lives a little bit more indirectly. And death has been removed from our visual and emotional field uh, and put behind closed walls because we're so afraid to look at it because it would force us to look at ourselves. So what do we take from this shift in how we manage these two things in terms of how to inform how to live our lives better? That's, thank you for reeling that in. I'm going to take it back to that war just for a second, just so we can loop that back. So I want, I want you to realize that those men, after 2 million people dead, were still marching into that warfare, knowing exactly what they were, that they were going to die. And they wrote some of the most heart-rending stories or letters back to their loved ones, you know, in preparation for their death. And yet at no point was there fear in there. And so how is it that a hundred years later, we're sitting here and what we're afraid of is ourselves. We're afraid as two men sitting on a couch together that our highest fear is that we don't know ourselves and that we don't know why, why we're here and that we might not be doing enough and that we don't really know how to connect to the people that we love. And where, where did we, how did we get there? You know, to the point where we, we, we lost the, the fear of death. Historically, we could, we could divorce from that. And then we lose the experience of real pain through this pursuit of a comfort lifestyle, ultimately, which has been this you know, hundreds of year march towards that. But obviously, in the last 50 years, there's never been a faster march towards such a massive portion of humanity living in comfort, you know, only to experience higher pain. And it's interesting that our chronic pain rates accelerate as our lifestyles appear to get more comfortable. Yeah, that's the great irony, right? That, that, that comfort and luxury is actually creating the pain that we then need to medicate ourselves against. And so that's where I think we have to reevaluate our concept of pain. Is pain actually a bad thing? Is it something that we need to avoid? And I would argue that not at all, because in an endocrine system, so as an endocrinologist, we're, it's my favorite field of medicine, and that's why I went into it, in the sense that everything is a feedback loop. And so if, if you have, if you eat sugar, your insulin goes up. If when your insulin goes up, glucose goes into the cell. When your blood sugar drops, insulin goes back down. And so there's a feedback loop that achieves all of that. There's this constant communication. So parathyroid hormone goes up to release calcium from the bone, and then it drops down to get calcium back into the bone. And so you have this constant regenerative cycling of tissue, of genes, of proteins, of all of the mechanics of cellular health are always in transition. They're always in this given exchange, this push and pull, give and take kind of communication. And our whole neurologic systems are loaded with pain receptors. And we have this very natural 
mechanism that releases opioids from our own cells. And we call them endorphins and we call them, you know, a lot of different little molecular terms, but these little molecules all have relationship to morphine. The structure of morphine is very similar to endorphin itself. And those endorphins that you achieve when you're running are hitting all of those pain receptors. And so it's very likely that you wake up with more back pain than you will have an hour into running. And so you'll hit that threshold where the first half hour is just misery when you're trying to get moving. And then suddenly you hit that threshold where pain just goes away. I'd be curious to, when you were running all those those uh, ultra marathons in, in Hawaii. What was that journey like? I mean, you did it over and over again to yourself. Like there must have been so much pain that week. Yeah, but it's a it's a different. I mean, there are different kinds of pain too. You know, psychic pain, emotional pain. Uh, you know, f- the physical pain, and then within the physical, is it acute or is it, you know, it, 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 there's so many ways to calibrate that and dissect it. So I don't know, I don't know, like, I don't know how to answer that other than to say, A, to, to your first point, yeah, like I have some like back stuff now and I'm a little creaky at 52 and I get out of bed in the morning, I'm like, I'm not moving so fluidly. But yeah, half an hour into the run, that's like all the pain goes away. You know, basically that's the best that I feel like, you know, all day when that's happening. Um, And I think, you know, one's relationship to pain is similar to one's relationship to time in that it's malleable and flexible depending upon your experience, right? So your exposure to it allows you to acclimate to it and develop a new and different relationship to it that that, um, in my experience allows you to kind of overcome the fear around it. Like once you embrace it rather than run away from it, um, you realize that it can be this, this crucible for, for growth and progress. And by progress, I mean personal growth, things of that nature. Which would you rather have? You just laid out a bunch of different types of pain. Which would I rather have? Physical pain, what kind of pain? psychological pain. Well, I mean, you know, physical pain is, is very like binary, you know, I think there was some study, I I stumbled across some article about a study that said um, that, you know, the psychic and emotional pain that we have is, you know, is, is we underestimate it. It's actually just as, as impactful and profound as the physical pain, but we don't think about the, those two things in the same way, nor do we treat them in the same way. So I would, I think you're exactly right. And in, in my personal experience, but definitely my experience as a physician, I see the psychic pain having far longer ramifications and more detrimental ramifications to function than physical pain. Physical pain is actually a neurologic experience where you have a neuron that's sensing a stimulus and it's sending a signal to your brain that's, just gonna, that's then going to send the experience of pain to your, your sensory, you know, processing center whereas emotional pain is so vague you know psychic pain is so vague in its trigger that your body can't prepare the same way you don't have the same warning systems you don't have the same coping mechanisms and so it's this insidious thing that creeps in and suddenly you're in you had an incredible term the other day i think it was the crucible of suffering and we can find ourselves in these moments of, for you, it was you know a couple of nights missed sleep and you find yourself in the crucible of suffering. Yeah, we've all missed those nights of sleep and we all have sensed that. It's so interesting how vulnerable the human brain is, right? Like we are all on the brink of insanity. You miss three nights of sleep 
and you get a little alcohol on top of that and you have a little bit of, you know, emotional stressor that you don't understand where it came from and all that. And pretty soon you're, you're pretty much psychotic. <laughs> Yeah. That's the reassuring part of being human. <laughs> and so just, just know you're not alone in that. That's, I guess, where I meet you there. We are so vulnerable. And I see this most, you know, in my journey with my psych patients. Um, this woman that has been with me the longest now, I've been her doctor for almost 20 years. And um, she came to me, she was on 35 medications. And 16 of those were essentially acting drugs for her brain. You know, mood, mood stabilizers, Antispasmodics, you know, she was on every freaking drug class that we have, and usually two, and and for most of those, two or three from a single drug class, and so she had so much redundancy in her drugs, and she spent, her, you know, from age like sixteen on to about, you know, when I met her, she was about forty-six, so she spent, you know, thirty years in psych wards, in and out of psych hospitals, and lived more time in psych wards than she did outside of them. And then was in, you know, you know, a Section 8 housing and all this kind of, you know, disability and all that between. That was 2002 that I picked her up, I guess, so, um, became 2002. And by 2012, 10 years later, I had her down to two medications and she hadn't been in a psych ward in two and a half years. Over the last eight years, she's bopped into psych wards twice, but it was only because she was homeless in those moments, and she knew how she could work the system to, to get, get a bed under her. And so she basically faked neuroses and got herself into psych wards twice since then. And um, she's not psychotic. She's not a psychotic person. Um, but on those psych wards, um, she, she was a terror. Like, she's a relatively short woman, but you know, quite overweight from all the drugs that she'd been on. All of them were causing obesity. Uh, shutting down her metabolism, but she had been famous for blowing through armored doors. She could she could run herself through armored doors and psych units, uh, and so she had this like preternatural strength in her psychosis that she could she was scary violent. Um, she's one of the most gentle people I know, and she's one of the most intuitive people. And I call her my oracle now because she'll call me up, you know, and be like, Dr. Bush, something is about to happen to you next week. That's going to be really interesting and great in this way. And sure enough, next week, something happens. And <laughs> wow. She's very tied into the spiritual realm. She can see things that we can't see. And so when she becomes vulnerable, when she becomes weakened, she looks floridly psychotic in a different way than you and I would, because she's closer to this veil that we can't really, uh, that is harder to approach for, uh, for people with more biologic faculties in place, perhaps. And so I point to her as an example of this, this threshold of is pain good, is pain bad? Because basically she was on 32 drugs to dull her experience of depression and anxiety to just a fog. And she was kept in a fog for 30 years and suffered despite all of the fog. And in the end, she just wanted to be seen. And so what I ended up, you know, being able to do as a human being was just really listen to her story over and over again. And she had to tell it to me until I was so tired of hearing her story. And it took me a long time to find out that her story ultimately was her biggest problem. That, and I would say it's the biggest problem that all of us face in this room is the story that you now tell yourself of what your life has been. It's keeping you in a box. So her story is obvious to look at. Well, her box was she's a psych patient and she's there. 
once I had listened to her story enough times as to how she got herself there by 16 into psychosis, turns out in that situation, it was her, she, her father runs a, a service station uh, over in, in the Stanton area in the, in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And um, by the time she was 12 years old, he, he was ha- allowing his employees to, to give him some money so that they could rape his daughter behind the service station. And this happened for you know a decade of her life in and out of psych ward. She'd come back and be raped again. And her father was perpetrating you know this situation around her. And so you hear that story and you're like, well, that's horrific. And that's, you know, what psyche could possibly handle that. And the answer is she could have handled it because she does now. She handles that story without any drugs because it got heard and she was able to, to process that enough times and realize that it wasn't her. She was a much bigger entity than that story. For a moment in this biologic body, she had been raped many times. Her father was somebody she could not trust, but she's much bigger than that. She's a spiritual being. And she got to this largely through her own, you know, kind of Christian mindset faith and, you know, some interesting people came into her life to kind of, I think, you know, infuse this with, you know, her knowledge of finding that bigger self. But she now sees herself as this, this energetic entity, this, this woman in the bigger sense of the word. She's a nurturing creative force on the planet that can, is tied into all of the history of, of God and spirituality and humanity and it's as as long as she can stay grounded in that, then the the short traumas that happened in her life here don't don't hurt her. It doesn't cause pain. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. 
Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. That's an amazing story. I mean, what I hear in that is is just the tremendous resilience that that we all have, and that we're born, you know, capable, and we have everything that we need to not only survive, but you know, weather whatever life throws at us. Um, but we're we've developed um, an insulated culture in which we disempower people by treating them as if they're powerless or incapable of handling these certain things. And it's delicate because you want to give people the support that they need to deal with something as traumatic as that. I mean, I can't possibly imagine. Um, but to say to somebody like, okay, this is, this is like, you need to be on all these pills or you need this and that is to tell somebody that they are not capable and it's to strip them of, of their power, right? And so what is the long-term implication of that message that you're sending to people? And to what extent is this um, epidemic of people desiring to be seen and not being seen, being driven by loneliness and like what Johan Hari would call lost connections. Like we're just, despite, you know, the internet connecting us all, we've never been more separated from each other and, and, and more alone. Like we're not living, you know, like this week has been on some level an experiment in, in alternative communal living and it feels good. I think everybody here would say like we all feel so connected to each other and there's a life force and a vitality that comes with that that we don't get to experience in our daily lives when we go back and we all immerse ourselves in our various you know, forms of cubicles in which we all live, right? So how can we restructure this to create, you know, to recapture those connections, to see each other, to allow ourselves to be seen and communally to support each other so that we can feel empowered and be empowered and provide empowerment to others. So how can we solve all the problems of yeah, society? Like basically, yeah, basically, so solve that. Yeah, that's, simple, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's super good. I, I love those questions. It's like, okay, succinctly, let's... Um, yeah, in some ways, I think that the fastest way to get there is let go of your story. Uh, the reason why you guys have had such transformational events this week is because nobody here really knew your story, and, and there wasn't time for us to all learn each other's stories. Instead, we chose to meet each other right where each of us was at, without any preconceived notions of who you, you all are or what faculties or experiences or accomplishments you've had, and just say, hey, I'm human. Sweet, I am too. Like, let's like just do this thing. Let's just start breathing and see where this goes. And suddenly people are turning into other animals and, and you feel vulnerable enough to share that and you express, you know, the horrific things that's happened in your life that would have, you know, led to being an animal and, you know, embodying that experience. And so how can we do that? How can we create a society where we don't fall back into our cubicles? The cubicle you've, you're really living in is your story. You're going to go back into an environment at home where everybody thinks they know who you are because you have very carefully created a cubicle that you show everybody. And you want them, you get frustrated when they can't see all four sides of your cubicle. You're like, well, you don't even know me. Like, you are a multi multifaceted spiritual creature that has innumerable facets and faces to you. 
there's such beauty and complexity in you, and yet you choose to show four faces of a cubicle. And you have created that story of your life and who you are through training. We do this with CVs and you know the curriculum vitae and the resume and all this stuff. Like we build this long story of what we've done in our life. Isn't it ridiculous that I could look at a resume and then suppose that I know anything about this human being that's applying for a job? Isn't it ridiculous that you would actually put something up on a dating website that you would think would show some face of who you are? Isn't it ridiculous that your partner in life who knows you better than anybody else can't see you because you won't let them? That's weird. <laughs> what are we doing? What we're doing is acting out of fear. We're afraid to let down those four walls because we're afraid there's nothing inside. Or perhaps we're afraid that, that what would be discovered inside would, is tantamount to being un, unlovable. Yes. And if there was something inside, we would have to be lovable, right? And so I think it's this sense of hollowness. You know? And so is it possible that you're unlovable? And for me, I had to you know, face this very brutally in my, you know, well, compared to World War I, not at all brutally. But again, sometimes that psychic pain can be greater than, than any physical threat. Um, had a great marriage, I thought. Uh, I was married for 18 years, together 20 years. I uh, met this woman when I was pretty young and uh, had two amazing kids and never really had a fight in 20 years. No conflict in the marriage. Um, but we, we, the adversity that we dealt with as a couple was really around... Uh, extended family, so uh, her whole family, including herself, were, suffered from major depression over their lifetimes, many, many times, and um, a couple of her siblings uh, tried to commit suicide, one of them protected them many, many times. So we rehabbed her siblings in our home for years at a time. And so those were the, the challenges that came up in those. And so from my rational brain, I was like, I've got a great marriage. It's amazing. Like, no conflict. We can support other people. You know, all this. And but there was this huge loneliness developing in both of our lives because we were showing each other, we were building stories. We were building these complicated, long stories of who we were becoming. And we, we could know each other less and less over time. And I did that to myself. I, I created a story that was so complicated and it had to do with being a doctor ultimately. And, you know, she knew me before I was a doctor and watched me through that journey and, you know, a whole stupid thing that everybody ever always right, introduces me as is you know parts of my story, which is you know, triple board triple certified. Board certified. I hear that so many times. I'm like, if I ever hear triple board certified again, I'm going to kill somebody. Like I'm just so sick of hearing that that sentence. And I've asked my employees to stop sending out that bio. Just like say, just Zach. He's kind of a confused guy. He's here to talk to you. <laughs> You know, just like send out something that's a little closer commit. to the mark. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just thing. like lost. He's just like wandering around. He just ran into, you know, he couldn't find an endpoint, so he's still wandering. It's something more realistic, you know, than than making it sound like a bunch of achievements. And 
And so I built all these stories, this long story, and I was looking for self-worth in pouring out service and being a, an ultimate service machine. And I was pretty freaking good at it. And at the cost of complete alienation from my wife. And she didn't, there's no way she could have known me by the end of that 20 year journey. And she had respect for me and she wasn't angry at me, but she, she there was like, there was nothing to touch. And that, you know, that was a number of years ago now, obviously. And um, the result in my life was largely that I couldn't touch anybody either. And so I had become untouchable because of the complexity of my story. And I couldn't touch anybody because of the complexity of my story. I was so walled off in my cubicle of my story. And you mentioned, you know, this identity of resilience in this woman, like, you know, what a resilient personality must have survived that. And I've come to see that that identity of resilience be the most destructive self-identity that somebody can have. Because if your self-identity becomes I am resilient, what do you need to prove that your identity? You need difficulty. You need pain, mm -hmm. suffering, difficulty, trauma, so that you can be resilient again. You will keep creating trauma in your life if your identity is resilience. You will never become successful if your identity is resilience. Because you would have to lose your self-identity to find ease and success. Another one that I see all the time is the identity of fix it. And I think that's where I fall into. I can fix anything. And Say the savior. I'm, I can literally fix anything. If you have a flat tire, no problem. I worked for a tire company, I'll fix your tire. Your refrigerator's down, no problem. I can fix your refrigerator. Your car goes out, no problem. I did the car mechanics for years. I can go fix your alternator, no problem. Uh, you need a house built, no problem. I, I have a general contractor license. I'll build you a house. You know, like, <laughs> I am a, a freaking pathetic fixer, like to the nth degree fixer. And if your identity is a fixer, what do you need in your life every day? You need bro shit broken that's broken. Stuff. You need yeah. a lot of shit broken. <laughs> and if there's nothing broken you'll probably fly off the handle and break something. Yeah. Or you go into an existential crisis. Yeah, now you you're in an identity crisis. Like, I'm useless to the world. I'm fucking useless. I haven't done anything in a day. I haven't fixed a damn thing today. <laughs> and so this is how our story becomes an identity that usually can be boiled down to one word. And each of you that I've met with this week have a one-word identity that we can find pretty quickly and be like, do you really want to be that? No, I hate that. I hate fucking fixing things every day. And I, in fact, that's what I bitch at most of all to my, my now wonderful wife. So I'm like, why am I always, everybody wants me to fix shit. Like, no, you want to fix shit. You're creating this stuff. Like, don't put, you're projecting yourself on other people. Like, other people don't, they just, they just mentioned something and you suddenly make that into something you need to go fix. They were just reporting status. They weren't telling, it wasn't a to-do list. They were, they were <laughs> activating. So how do we transcend these one-word identity constructs that we create for ourselves? It's, it's the hardest thing we can do. And, it, it, and yet it is done instantaneously. It's a decision 
that can be had, which says, are you willing to let go of everything you think you are? Are you willing to actually become nothing for a moment? This is where, where pain can be powerful because short of pain, who's going to say yes to that? Exactly. Exactly. And nowhere more desperately do we need that at the end of life, probably, you know, if we haven't found self yet, we need to find it in those last couple minutes of life so that we can have closure on this biologic journey that we did in this body and have a rise in consciousness. And I get increasingly excited about our clinic because we do no biology anymore. And it frustrates the hell out of a lot of my people that come into clinic. The first time a patient comes in with cancer and they know that I've got an outside box approach to cancer and all this, and they want me to freaking fix their cancer. And we will never talk about their cancer. And they keep trying to bring it back to cancer, and we talk about something else. Because the cancer is not the problem. The cancer is a symptom downstream of this disconnect ultimately from themselves. And the psychic trauma that's been held in their body from not being themselves has created massive disconnect at the physiology level. And there's profound loneliness happening down at the cellular level to achieve a cancer cell. I can't remember if we've talked about this before or not, but, but a cancer cell is, has been sliced off from all communication. And once it loses communication with, from the greater organism, it, it hasn't lost one thing, which is a drive for life. And so it's very fascinating that at the cell level, one of your skin cells has a drive for life. One skin cell, independently, with nothing else around it, still has a drive for life. Mm. And it's going to try to make something bigger than itself. And so it becomes poorly differentiated, meaning that it doesn't make skin anymore. Instead, it makes what we would call a tumor. It's creating a pluripotent or more multidimensional cell, and it starts to proliferate because it can't repair itself. The hallmark of a, a cancer cell is a lonely cell that can't repair itself, and so its only choice in its highest state of damage is to, to proliferate. But what's fascinating about that is that the malignancy is triggered by the disconnection from the community and the network, right? And this is something that, that operates at uh, the micro level, but is also, you know, ultimately very true at the, at the most macro level of how we live. I mean, when you think of that guy who climbed up the, you know, the hotel there to shoot all those people in Las Vegas. Right. It's like, a, he's like a, he is a cancer, he's cell, a cancer cell who is activated in a malignant way through disconnection. And he's out to try to find self-identity through destruction of the environment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we create war. I think nations go to war trying to find self-identity because they've lost their core. And so they go kill other things to try to find some relevance or some sense of power because they lost it. And this is what terrifies me, that we haven't had a war on our soil in over 100 years with a civil war being our last major one is that we're going to do that again to find ourselves. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. 
Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Well, one, one of the things that's, that's interesting about your work is, is that the path forward involves creating connection, but even more so, it's about discovering the connection that's already there, like in this, this uh, idea of the, the quorum sensing that you talk mm. about, like we are already more connected than we're consciously aware of and developing a means of, of kind of understanding on an intuitive and unconscious as well as conscious level, the connection that we all share is a way of overriding that sense of disconnection that is creating all of these problems. It's a perfect transition. Um, so quorum sensing is a description of uh, a hyperintelligence in my in my reading of it. So uh, bacteria and fungi can create massive communities which suddenly take on uh, a ultra intelligence that's far beyond the capacity of any individual within the community. And so in, in, in the fungal world, we can see chemical responses uh, to a nutrient load, for example. So if you you've deposit a bunch of fertilizer on one corner of a farm, the entire mycelial colony starts to sense an imbalance in the ecosystem uh, across many acres. and you go and biopsy the soil on the other side of the farm a few weeks later and you find that the nutrients you just dumped in here have suddenly appeared over here. And so there's an intelligent distribution of resources through very complicated, very distant you know, systems. And so that's one way in which we watch quorum sensing happen. But a, a bigger one can be seen as we kind of keep moving up the biologic chain. And uh, a good example is trees. And so... Uh, if you let cattle um, into a new paddock that they've never been in, they all go for the trees first. We think of them as, as, as grass eaters, but they always shoot for the trees first. And so they'll go for the trees and they'll eat all of the lower leaves off the trees. And suddenly the trees, sensing the, the damage being done, uh, will wait for a period of time until it reaches a point where it realizes that there's, that there's going to be a detrimental, detrimental effect. Which is interesting that there's a, a rate of loss that's not detrimental, it's probably good for it. So the tree is getting pruned by the, the cow and it recognizes that as being beneficial to encourage more crown growth and more growth up top. And then it suddenly senses, okay, that's enough. And it puts out a chemical to make the leaves bitter and the cows will immediately stop eating the rest of the leaves. So they then move on to the grass. 
the giraffes do this in African uh, tree systems as well. And so the giraffes will come in a new space and start eating, and they'll eat an entire tree unless, of course, there's, there's sensing happening and the tree suddenly exerts uh, this, this new chemical shift and it gets bitter. And th- but interestingly, they've now recognized that an entire grove of trees will sense that one tree's response and the entire grove will go bitter simultaneously. And so there's intelligent communication happening between trees that cover, you know, large, you know, square mile kind of spaces. And so there's this hyper intelligence that happens when organisms start to cooperatively recognize themselves of being able to achieve a bigger network of sensing, communication, and ultimately processing and information processing and therefore intelligence. And we see this repeated in nature everywhere we look from the hive mind and the way that bees you know colonize and operate from the migration of birds uh and and we kind of tend to look at it and say wow wouldn't it be cool if like humans could communicate like that like the borg in star trek yes. and, and that's the dark version of that i suppose but <laughs> but uh but you know it, it, to what extent is, is the human organism able to communicate in a more networked fashion like this? Yeah, so um, before I get to human to human, actually, it just came to me that um, there's something, maybe you can help me create this, actually, that'd be fun to do together. Um, I, ha- I had a moment when I was snorkeling off the coast of uh, Tulum, Mexico, uh, many years ago now, but I was um, in, in a... This was in my alone phase. I decided I was going to become a monk. And so my first couple conversations with with Jen was how I was a monk and I was never going to be in another relationship and all of this. And so she apparently saw through all of that um, bullshit story that I was creating for myself and this, is another, this cubicle that I, I had created for myself. Yeah. And so I had a new identity of uh, I'm a monk. And um, and so, uh, but I was in my monk mode and, and I was... Um, feeling disconnected and wanting to connect in my life. And uh, where I f- often feel most connected is, is floating in the ocean alone over a coral reef and, and just watching this civilization below me that I, I don't really feel any belonging to, but I just watch it in all of its beautiful connectivity. And I'm fascinated by the tiniest things in coral reefs, right? Like the big fish are cool, but I'm just fascinated by the little hair-like structures that wave back and forth. And what the hell are those doing? And like, yeah, those things are finding purpose and just being a hair that waves back and forth all day in the ocean. It just goes back and forth and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that that little hair-like thing on the coral reef has never woken up with an identity crisis. (laughs) It's like, no, this is what I do, man. I'm in flow. I'm like, I got the ocean and it's the waves and I I can sense what's going on on the other side of the ocean because there's ripples that happen through and I can sense that and I'm connected. I'm like, I'm the sensory system for the entire planet that's 70% water. And my God, how beautiful is that to be a sensory fiber for the ocean itself and to know what's happening on the planet and I am coral reef and... You get into that state, and it's like, okay, this is this is freaking beautiful, and you can start to get yourself in there. And so I, I decided, you know, I, there was a day where I didn't have time to, to go travel to one of the reefs that I always loved traveling to, but I just wanted to get out in the waters. So I just, like, started swimming out with my snorkel, and just going out, just, there was no expectation of reef because it was just all sand, and it was out there, and swam and swam and swam, and 
And then I started finding, you know, not really reef per se, but chunks of coral and chunks of, you know, some amazing, uh, you know, those fern corals that are out there and stuff like that. And so I found some cool things and I was like, that's nice. And popped my head back, looked up and realized I was way further away from the shore than I had ever really been and I got you know a little panicked because I'm not like super swimmer dude or anything like that and just had that little moment of like oh my god I hope I can get back like that's a long ways and and so I started back and I'm swimming back and you know quickly got over that little panic attack and I was like okay I just just keep at it and got my head back down in the water and just cruising and and suddenly I got surrounded by a massive school of sardines and this went on for 45 minutes that I was in this swarm of sardines. And it's more life than you can even really begin to describe. I mean, this thing must have been a quarter mile in length at least, you know, this, this massive school of fish. And uh, interestingly, as soon as I, I saw it coming and I didn't, you know, at first know what it was, it looked like you know, a ship or something like that. Like it looked like a big solid structure coming to me and look above the water. There's nothing there. And it's coming at me so fast that it wasn't like, I'm going to run away from this thing. It was like, I'm going to get hit by this thing. And by the time they were about 10 feet away, I could start to pick out that they were all these silver, the silver heads of all these fish. And then they swarm came around me and they respected my field to, I'd say probably almost exactly six inches. Like they were just completely around me and I was completely engulfed and had very quickly lost orientation. Whereas you know, you lose sense of up and down because there's no sunlight. You're just in silver, just flashing silver up, down, all around. And, um, I got so excited. I was like, they, they can see me. And I could push my hand as fast as I could out in the water and I couldn't touch a fish, mm-hmm. you know? And there's like, I'd go that and they'd be six inches all the way around my arm. And I looked and I'd pull my arm back and I couldn't even see a hole. Like they would <laughs> close in on that space so fast that my eye couldn't sense the speed. And so they were this ultimate quorum, right? They're this ultimate organism made of probably hundreds of millions of fish. They're all like a few inches long and they cover, you know, and so they're moving past me pretty quickly over this 45 minute period. And then, you know, swarm this thing. And some minutes into this, I start to get really panicked because I'm, I think that I'm starting to become sardine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to have so much sardine energy around me that I'm just like, and it's, it was exciting for those first few minutes. It was like, this is. I'm having a, a once-in-a-lifetime moment, and, and you know, you all have had those moments where you're like, "This will never happen to me again." I'm probably the only human experiences this right now on this planet, and you're, you're in that elated sense. And then pretty soon, you're like, "You know, I, I don't know what life is going to be after this moment. Like, nothing's the same after this moment." And I would say that many of you this week are in a sardine moment of you're starting to sense an energy field. There's an organism that you're starting to plug into that you've always been craving, but you're feeling a, a, a fear of loss of identity because nothing's going to be the same when you go back. If it is, you missed a big opportunity. You need to become sardine here, okay? <laughs> You need to become buffalo here as you have. Did anybody pick the sardine card? Yeah. Is there a sardine card? No, there's no. <laughs> <laughs> and so sardine was such an interesting experience. And one of the, I didn't even realize this, but this is freaking profound. It comes right back to where we started. 
which is about, you know, some minutes into this experience, I had become sardine. I had become relaxed into that, that, okay, I'm probably still going to be human on the other side of this. I will be changed. Um, but I'm not actually sardine yet. And so I got past that panic attack. And then suddenly there's these explosions of bubbles around me, just massive ex- micro bubble explosions. And I couldn't figure out what it was for some time. And then I happened to have a little clearing in the fish long enough for me to see uh, pelican feet uh, on the water surface around me and realized that the pelicans were bursting in, but their their traverse through the water and then back up with a fish in their mouth was so fast that my eye wasn't quick enough in that 10,000th of a second to see it. Your eye can perceive it about that 10,000th of a second rate. And so by the time I was sensing something, all I could see was bubbles. And so I, I couldn't track their trajectory through the water because it was beyond that, that speed at which my eyes are capable of capturing neurologically what I was seeing. And as soon as I saw the pelican feet in a split second, I figure out what's going on. I feel this immediate emotional reaction of my friends are getting eaten. Like, this is terrible that we're having loss. And I said... And, and I, I went there for just a split second, and Sardine said back to me, like somebody screaming at me, no, like wrong. And I tied back into that energy, and there had been an elation event in this group of fish. They were elated in this moment of pelicans hitting. And there was this rise in energy happening in this thing as transformation was happening at a very, very high energetic level. And so they, there was zero empathy for the loss of their brethren. And you see that same thing when one million men wa- march into war. There's a loss of empathy for the individual, and there's only a sense of there's human suffering and there's human victory. And I want to be a part of that. And I'm just as willing to be part of the human suffering and loss of life as I am to be part of the victory. And that is just the blind. And so I think in warfare, we can reach this state of non-empathic presence. And so our challenge now as humans is, I believe, to reach non-empathic presence without war. What if we can non-empathically witness loss of life? You mentioned how can we possibly not treat with with opiates somebody who's suffering at the end of life because we feel for them. Well, that's where we fuck things up, I think, is we start having all these emotional responses to this situation, which inevitably is selfish. Because your emotions have nothing to do with that person's journey, and you're putting your journey on that person's thing, projecting all your crap on that situation of somebody who's in a train. And what is that going to do to their energy field? It's going to drop their energy, and they're going to suffer more for it. And so my nurses on the hospice environment did the best thing in the world, which was touch patients. And the most powerful ones used Reiki, which is an age-old technique for not touching them just with skin, but touching them with energy and raising their vibration. And pain goes down immediately, immediately. And so a non-empathic approach to pain and loss of life raises vibration. These fish demonstrated this in an incredible way of they realized that there was a cycle of life happening right now and they wanted to be a part of that and they were not afraid of that cycle of life. They, were, they in fact, were excited. They were thrilled by the opportunity to be engaged in the cycle of life, which was death and rebirth. That same story takes me to a thought of Victor Schauberger. 
Um, if you haven't heard of Victor Schauberger, you've got to look this guy up. One of the greatest minds of the 20th century and probably one of the most unheralded geniuses of that century. Um, he, he was a forester, and that's why he didn't get much attention. Austrian forester, fifth generation Austrian forester in the same forest. So imagine the intelligence that would come into a human being that for five generations, his dad, grandfather, 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 grandfather had been observing the same section of Austrian highland forests. What intelligence would come from that kind of quorum sensing, multi-generational intelligence? And when you read Victor Schauberger, you see what comes out of that. This man as a forester had more profound discoveries of human biology than any physician or scientist in that century. He discovered that the heart is not a pump for blood. He discovered that how fish can sit dead still in a fast running river and not move, not be swept downstream. Have you guys seen that before? Isn't that the weirdest thing? Have you even asked yourself, why is that happening? Fast running stream and the fish is dead still, not moving. No effort, to, but he's not being swept into the current. And he figured out that the shape of the fish scales are designed in those river fish to create a, a, a sweep of energy across the scale that creates a negative charge on the back side of that scale that pulls the fish forward. And so the fish is creating a magnet that is equal exactly to the speed of the water. And so if the water flows faster, it pulls forward faster. If it slows down, it slows down at the exact rate such that it doesn't move. And it doesn't need to move a fin to stay in exactly the same velocity as the water that's traveling by it. That guy figured that shit out. Without any devices, without anything, he figured it out staring at nature and observing nature at this exquisite level. And one of the observations he made that ties back to the sardines and where I would love for you and I to get to as human beings is he had long witnessed and wrote about even um, this phenomenon that in these high mountain lakes of Austria, he, he would see an eagle circling a, a, a lake. And it would go into a tighter and tighter circle in that lake and pull, and then he would see a fish following the shadow of, of the eagle. And the eagle would pull it into a tighter and tighter vortex and then right at the center of the lake would grab the fish and, and take off. And so he had this whole amazing theory that he observed of how eagles go fishing. And they create a vortex of energy and pull a fish into the vortex. And, and then some years later, he happened to look down. He was high enough and at just the right trajectory where he saw a fish swimming in a giant circle around the outside of a lake. He's like, that's weird. So he sat down and sure enough, kept seeing it come by and lapse and did this for about 30 minutes before an eagle came and started following the fish and got tighter and tighter, tighter and tighter. And he said, I've seen this dance before. And he realized this time that in the last couple of split seconds, the eagle never reached inside the water. The fish jumped out of the water into the talons of the eagle. So he realized all those years he was not observing eagles fishing. He was observing fish jumping to a different plane. That's so interesting to me. What if we saw death as a heightening of our experience, an opportunity to go four-dimensional? 
release ourselves of these 3D environments. Can you imagine the fish that was limited to that lake for its entire existence and then got to soar into the sky for a few seconds to witness what the mountains looked like? To see down at that lake that it had spent its entire life with and be like, oh my God, that was the freaking box I've been stuck in. That's it. Yeah, a little speck of water down there and these grandiose mountains. And oh my God, there's lakes all over the place. I didn't realize. Oh my gosh, look at the freaking expanses of life around me. And that's exactly what my patients come back from the dead with. Why the hell did you pull me back here? You brought me right back into the box and I am in pain and you've stuck a latex tube in every orifice of my body and I don't want to be here and you keep touching me with those goddamn latex gloves. I just want to be connected back to universe and connected at a high level to nature. You're yearning for that and you'll get there. We're running a pretty good rate of pretty damn near 100% death for humankind. <laughs> and so you can get to that expansion and we're cruising there now as a species, you know. Uh, Jamma talked so well yesterday about, you know, this, this you know, speed of the loss of life that we're now in. She wasn't so beautiful yesterday. I was just so blessed to, to listen to you yesterday. There, there's such hope in somebody finding truth in their life and being willing to blow up their paradigm. You're the only freaking crazy doctor in all of that freaking crazy island of the UK <laughs> yeah. willing to be as crazy as you are. Uh-huh. That's ridiculous and brave and interesting. And you're breaking apart cubicles that people have put you in. And you're breaking apart an education that built a box for you to be in. And you're blowing that apart. And I think that's what makes your whole podcast compelling is you interview people that have had to, through often real hardship, blow up their paradigm and blow up that cubicle to find themselves larger than what they thought they were before. But there's so much beauty in that destruction, right? And I, and I think it does, it does relate to these stories that you're talking about with the fish and the eagle and the sardines um, in the sense that we, we, there, you know, maybe we need to blow up this paradigm or, that we've constructed around you know, empathy for suffering and the life and death cycle, right? So it's like from your, through your lens and these stories that you've just told, uh, the most empathetic thing that we can actually do is, is to suspend our empathy. And the rationale behind that is to broaden the aperture through which we perceive life and death and suffering and growth. You know, one of the things that Julie talks about a lot is, is not depriving people of their divine moment. Like this, this empathy that we have for pain and you know, suffering at the end of, end of life can easily be applied to how we approach people in their various suffering moments throughout life. To suspend empathy is also to respect and empower the person who's going through whatever they're going through so that they can fully embrace what's being presented to them so that they have the, um, the facility to undergo that transformation for themselves, to blow up their own paradigm about who they are so that they can get to that next place. It's hugely important. And I guarantee you that each of you who are in a relationship right now are in some ways palliating your partner and you're, you're trying to salve their pain and therefore keeping them from transformation. And we do this out of altruism 
but it's a it's a a broken model of altruism. Mis, there's misguided misguided uh, altruism, and so we we show what we think is compassion to one another, which in the end is selfishness, because we're we're exercising our moment to to redefine our self identity as a compassionate person or as a giver or as a server. And ultimately, we're selfishly using that person's pain to, to buoy up our self-identity. Mm-hmm. Which is vampiric, really. It's completely vampiric. Yeah. And you will come to feel this in your life. When you get good at recognizing these patterns of your own behavior, you'll suddenly realize that people are literally vampires on your energy. Mm-hmm. And they're sucking life out of you. And you created those. You literally like walked up to the vampire and was like, you want to suck on this? You know, it's yeah. just like, here's my carotid. You know, here, just take the radial artery. It's right here. You know. Oh, you too. I've got another one. No problem. I've got another. Here, you can suck on my ankle. You're, you are draining yourself intentionally to maintain some belief system about why you're valuable. You know, don't, don't empathically approach the people around you to support your sense of identity. It's, it's the most awful thing that we could do to each other is to leech on to a moment of pain and suffering so that we can feel better about ourselves. And so you need to stop being so abusive to one another in your self-professed care for one another. Um, we were talking before the podcast and you were telling me about this study among college students solving this puzzle and, and how that kind of applies to yeah. this super consciousness that we have. Can you just share that? So I think that you probably felt it though, but in the description of the sardines, for example, right. did you, or the coral reef, did you have a moment where you felt that extension of intelligence? Like you suddenly feel like, oh yeah, I could literally stick my toe in the ocean and if I sat there long enough I could sense everything that's going on on the planet you know there's that level of connectivity and so quorum sensing as we started with there is that philosophy that um, in the end everything is electrons and uh, everything's electrons interacting with protons and so this is accounts for about 0.0001% of the space that we live in and so we are 99.9997% vacuum space and so is everything, the planet, the microbiome, everything's vacuum space. And so we have almost nothing solid. But what is solid is these little protons that have recently been recognized to have the same structure as the black hole. That's in the middle of our galaxy. And so these black holes are these massive energetic centers of gravity that pull in everything, including light energy, and kick stuff back out. And so Stephen Hawkins... Uh, Uh, became known for many great discoveries, but one of them was the Hawkins particles that got named after him. And he recognized that black holes out in outer space are putting out all these particles of information and this digital data that's just flowing out of black holes. And he held for a long time that that was just chaotic information. And then more recently, a lot of astrophysicists all came to the agreement that, no, that's structured information. And through other work in astrophysics, they've realized that all the black holes are connected. 
uh, through wormholes and the like. And so black holes, holes are all connected. There's a black hole at the center for pretty much every galaxy out there. And so we have billions of galaxies um, throughout the universe. And, and so we have these billions of black holes that are all connected. And that's all fascinating. And, and when you start to think about what would be the structured data coming out of black holes throughout the universe, does that start to resemble what we might call the intention of God or the information of a super computer. There is a super intelligence that is a process through all of the black holes in the universe. And so there's a stream of information, of data, structured, coming out of all the black holes and flowing into the entire universe. And from that, we see the organization of plasma and matter and planets and solar systems and galaxies and ultimately organisms on those planets and then humans. And then we rush down into the cells within your hand and then you look down into your hand and you realize, okay, that's all atomic structure and you zip down deeper and it's like, yep, this is all, all uh, made out of these little tiny protons ultimately. And so then Nassim Haramein, who's an incredible physicist right now, if you haven't seen his stuff, you need to look up Nassim, N-A-S-S-I-M, Haramein, I think it's H-E-R, -R, uh, I'm going to butcher that last name, E-M-E-I-N, Haramein. And Nassim's work has shown that the proton is a, a tiny, tiny black hole and functions with all of the, the physical features of a black hole. And what's rushing in and out of the black holes is electrons. And the electrons are speeding across environments and exchanging information. And um, what, how this manifests then is exchange of information at the atomic level. And at the atomic level of these atoms exchanging inside of protons, which are basically the central processing units of these of a computer. And so you got the CPU that's processing all the information coming out of the electron. The electron reacts with its environment and then comes back into the proton to tell the proton what it just experienced. Proton then just kicks out, oh, okay, it just, this is what's my environment. And so it now informs all the other electrons that come in and okay, this is what the experience is out there. And then all the black holes are communicating. What All the protons in your body, which is billions and billions and billions and billions and billions are all communicating and the electrons are exchanging very quickly. And so over this you know, hour and a half or whatever we've been in this room together, we've all exchanged almost all of our electrons very quickly. You know, All of the atoms in all of our cells and all of our molecules are exchanging electrons. We have this huge cloud of electrons in here that have all exchanged and now trans transected into the protons and exchanged information. The speed at which this happens is proved in these experiments that, that we were talking about. And so they take groups of 30 or 40 students, college students, and give them a really difficult word, word puzzle. It's a crossword puzzle. And they time how long it takes for this group of students to solve this puzzle together. And then as soon as they, they click the timer, okay, 45 minutes or whatever it was, they then wait five minutes, and then they start a second group of students across campus on the same word puzzle. And every time they've done this, the second group finishes it a few minutes faster. And so even across the distance of a campus, electrons are exchanged fast enough that there's a, a universal knowingness that's developing in the environment. And you guys have all witnessed this over time. How many of you have grandchildren? No grandparents in the room? That's me. One grand grandparent in the room? Does anybody have, you know, kids or nieces and nephews under the age of five? You know? And so a few more people in the room. What is the reaction of that child to a small rectangular box that we would call an iPhone? 
that kid will learn to crawl just so it can get to the iPhone. That kid will scream bloody murder on an airplane until mom finally hands over the iPhone. She doesn't want to because she doesn't want the kid to have screen time, doesn't want the kid to be holding a radiation device. But eventually mom gives in because the kid is fixated on this freaking little rectangle. This is quorum sensing at the greater level now is these children are born into an environment where information technology is in such a high level of experience in the human consciousness right now that the child knows that that's what it must want more than anything else because their parents are spending more time on that little box than anything else, and more than any relationship in their lives. They will spend more time on that box in a day than they will talk to their own spouse. They will spend more time on that box than they will interact with their boss. It must be the most important thing. Our children can sense that. And so they don't know why it's the most important thing. One-year-old has no idea what the frick the box is. All they know is it's very important. And they have a facility in that technology that after decades of using those damn things, I can't match. A three-year-old is way better on an iPhone than I am because there's this constant electrical exchange of information and experience. And so we should take massive pause and ask, what is the quorum sensing right now through my contribution what is your daily experience contributing to this higher electrical state of humanity? Are you touching anybody in a day? Can we do ourselves a favor right now and can we just hold, hold hands just for the next however long? Let's just hold hands. That's just me and you, which will look awkward, but that's all good. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that we don't even do this very often, right? Like, it's like the freaking simplest thing in the world. Like, hey, I've got a hand. I'm getting this opposing thumb. It's kind of cool. Us and the monkeys. And we just fix shit instead of touch each other. We just fix stuff. You guys are all doing maintenance all day long, and you're not touching another hand. This is the best pain control. Not that only I have. that, we go out of our way to avoid this. This is very awkward and vulnerable. Yeah, and, and frightening. <laughs> yeah, we both got the black thing too. I noticed that when we sat down, like shit, we yeah. must look kind of dorky up here. But yeah. we got the, got the men in black thing going on up here, and now we're holding hands. And and that, you know, on some level, you think this this is kind of awkward. But on the other hand, it feels really good. Like your hand feels really nice, Rich. It's not sweating yet. It might start sweating. It's really lovely because you have a softness to the palm that's like kind of hugging on my palm. Yes. All right. What are you doing after this, Zach? Yeah, I'm free. My <laughs> wife left this morning. And I'm good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, Julie just gave permission, so uh, like I feel like you know, got the hall pass. We're good. Like, you guys are touching somebody next to you. And in that touch, you're exchanging an amazing amount of information that's invisible. You can't see it, and you don't know it yet. You don't even know what you're absorbing from that person next to you yet. And I'm really glad I'm touching Rich's hand because he's talked to a lot of really smart people over the last decade, and so I'm going to absorb all kinds of brilliance out of this hand. Let's just close our eyes for a second so we can more immerse ourselves in that feeling of that person's hand. Just send a little pulse of love in, in, out both hands now. Just a little pulse. I don't have to get too dramatic about it. Control yourself. 
impulse. And now do something far more difficult that I don't even know if I know how to do yet. Which is open up your heart right now and be willing to absorb all that other love. You have so many blocks right there. You're walking around so protected. Such a well-constructed cubicle around your heart. You're afraid you're unlovable. So just take it down. Take down the cubicle walls. I don't think anybody's really opened up their heart yet because nobody's really exhaling huge right now. So let's just try take a deep breath in. Let it all the way out. Just, just let it out. Look back to your chest. And now turn your attention back to your palms and just gently ask for love. just want some love and let it run up your arms and let it start to fill your chest let's take another deep breath together and suck in all that love you can in this moment experience everything that everybody else in this room has experienced all the knowledge they've collected, all of the intelligence that they are capable of, all of the service they've given to their loved ones. And it turns out they're all just as good as you are at pouring love out. And they're just as bad as you are at taking love in. And so the sheer amount of available love in this room is infinite. There's so much unabsorbed love in here. And I think that's why we are suffering so much as humanity is we've disconnected from the, the vortex, the matrix of love that is literally emanating out of all of us all the time. And we can't even figure out how to plug back into that. You are so loved. I want you to go back in time right now to the womb. Here we are right now, we're at some age and we're gonna just start traveling back swiftly. <coughs> Go through your mind's eye, whatever, hit age 20. Man, it's great to be 20, that's such a cool. Now you're 10. You haven't had to go through the fucking puberty shit yet. And you're just like still like in that wonderful magical moment of being 10 when life's still very simple. Like you just wanna go ride bikes with your friends. Remember when you're 10 and you, you catch a perfect hill on your bike and you're just flying down it. There's complete freedom, no effort, just wind whipping by you. I remember when you were five and you're digging your first big hole in the ground. I don't know why we're all driven to dig holes, but we do that all the time. And you were a kid digging a hole somewhere on a beach or the backyard. Just remember how tiny your hands are when you're five. It's so funny. Little hands are so damn cute, and they're funny almost, kind of puffy. Fat little hands. And then you're like two, and you're just like so pleased with yourself because you can walk from the coffee table over to the shelf to rip something off this bookshelf. And you're just so pleased with yourself at two. And then suddenly you're this newborn, and you're just blowing your mind over the beauty of the world. 
you just came out of this like kind of glowy, warm space. It was nothing very distinct to see. And you're just in this cacophony of color, sound, voices. You're just taking all that in in a brain that has no idea what it's seeing yet. But deeper down in that newborn is a, a very knowing soul. And if we back up into the womb now, where you're just an embryo, not even fully formed yet, I think there's still at some point in that transition between single cell and newborn baby, you're animated by this energy field. And this energy field has a deep knowingness in it. It's been in the universe since the beginning of whatever creation was. And you're in the womb with this deep knowingness inside yourself. And you're the collision of a little bit of DNA from mom and dad that helps give structure to the interaction with an electromagnetic field that will then manifest a personality that can't be coded for in the genes. It's easy to feel like an amazing parent when you have one child, but then when you have a second child, you suddenly realize you have nothing to do with this process. It's so different. It's like so impossibly different from that first child. And you're like, what? Because you're not actually from your parents. I would like you all to dwell on that for a very long moment right now. You are not from your parents. So stop blaming them. They didn't create you. Are you kidding? No. They're just lost, confused human beings. You came from something much bigger. A much deeper knowingness and much deeper wisdom. So sit in that for a moment. You're not from your parents. That's wonderful. So we have to stop blaming them for their shortcomings or their successes. We can, we can neither give them credit nor, nor ridicule for whatever happened in the parenting journey. And the dominant emotion that I find underlying most of the disease I take care of is abandonment. At some point you had a moment where you felt abandoned. And it can seem really trivial, and it was really trivial. Like your parents went out on a date and for, you woke up from a nap. You didn't know they were going to be gone and they were gone and you felt suddenly terrified and lonely like your parents had banned you and it turns out that the babysitter was just late and they showed up. And I hear those little things all the time. In fact, that's what engendered the first moment of you thought you were abandoned. And sometimes it's awful, horrific things, awful abuses and all kinds of things that made you feel abandoned. But I want you to realize in the same way that you are not from your parents, there's no way they could have abandoned you, nor could they give you any actual companionship on the spiritual level. They are no more connected with their soul than anybody else, and so they were no more capable of really being present with you. They were there biologically for you, but they didn't know how to connect with you at that spiritual level. And my big victory of my last decade it was really finding out that when my mom was pretty sick when I was growing up, she had severe epilepsy and was always having seizures. And so I was in this caretaking mode early on in my life and oldest child of four kids. So I was kind of taking care of my siblings while she's having a seizure, taking care of her. And I remember being in a grocery store with her head on my lap and she's having a seizure and people are freaking out around me and just you know, patiently waiting for her to stop having a seizure. Those kinds of experiences I ended up holding within me that I wasn't being nurtured. 
I wasn't being cared for. I was lonely because my mom couldn't be there to take care of me. And I found out a few years ago doing some just deep work with a myofascial therapist, releasing grief and the sense of I wasn't nurtured, to find out the embarrassing and humbling and incredible reality that there had been angels all over me in every one of those moments at the soul level, nurturing my soul, never letting go of me. And that changed my whole perception of my story. My story had been a kid with a sick mom who had to take care of people. In that moment, I realized I'm a soul that's ancient, that's been nurtured at the highest level of vibration since before I came into this body, and especially while I've been in this body. And so give up your story. Your story is not one of hardship, I guarantee it. Our forefathers' generations had some hardship that we have never known. But deeper than that, there is no hardship on the soul level because the souls move as a sardine would. Those souls, that soul within you, is literally as, as non-empathetic and non-empathic as the fish. It's just seeking a higher vibration. And it's asking you to a higher vibration. And so you are an ancient soul wrapped up in this moment. You are not abandoned at any moment. You have been cared for on a level that defies our understanding, our words. The word angel is not sufficient. These are beings of light. These are beings of energy that we have really no construct to understand in our human minds. And they're all around us, and we don't even understand that. We don't know why. We don't know how to interact with them entirely. But life is not the way it looks around you. And you're going to get there faster to this state of being, being willing to let go of your cubicle. What story have you been telling everybody that you have got to get gone? I want you to rebirth right now. You're in the womb right now, and I just want you to come back into this world with completely fresh eyes. Travel down that birth canal, that dark tunnel. And there's light at the end of that tunnel. And there's total chaos at the end of the tunnel for all your perceptive limitations because you're about to step back into the world without any of your previous constructed self-identity and that's gonna feel like chaos. You're not going to be able to make immediate sense of everything because you're going to keep checking yourself. Say, is that my old story? Be willing to be completely rebirth. And we need to do that every single day because you're so patterned in creating a new story. And you're just going to go build another one and you're going to fashion a new cubicle and you're going to be very super pleased with it. I think it's all shiny and cool, and you'll be just as stuck as you were before. And so, what will the quorum manifest? What are we going to do with our time so that we set in motion electrons that would inform not just our fellow man, but the children that would come after us? What are the whales going to sense right now? Can we connect with those fish and whales in the sea right now and say, I'm sorry? 
I am so sorry for all the plastic in your belly. I am so sorry for our selfish dominance of this planet. Thank you for your grace and your willingness to connect instantaneously with us. Thank you for welcoming us in as sardine and buffalo and wolf, eagle, fish, egg. Whatever cards you pulled this week, I want you to go to that space for a moment. Go to your egg for a moment. Go to your card and, and think about that. What were you called to become this week? Have you let go enough of your story that you can become that thing? Bless you, Zach. Thank you for that beautiful offering. How's everybody feel? Reborn? Appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for being here with all of us. So grateful. So grateful to each of you. It's so ridiculous that you showed up. Seven billion people on the planet and you guys showed up. <laughs> Seven billion. This is the cream of the freaking crop right here. Seven billion rows right now this week to become something bigger than yourself. Tap into something deeper. And I love it that you guys pulled this trick on everybody. <laughs> yeah, we got this vegan thing and we got to get some good food and we run. Yeah, bullshit. You guys are like a freaking wrecking ball of previous lifetimes. I freaking love this place. Thank you for the sneak attacks. Thank you for uh, the well-designed trust. And that's actually uh, what you've created in your podcast. And we've come to trust you in, in the language and the, the information you share with us. We've come to trust these layers of education you guys put out in the world. And that trust allowed us to come to this place where we could be in deep relationship uh, without having even known each other before. Um, since you're a friend of Rich and Julie, you're my friend too, and that started us off on a really strong point. And uh, we've built some really cool friendships that obviously you, you can hear all the exchanges. Like th there's a lot of these friendships that are going to continue on now. You guys are going to keep touching each other, and you're going to build build a fucking tribe. Cause we need it so badly. We are so isolated, and uh, tribes rising, consciousness is rising. And uh, I think that we can actually get to a sardine moment without that catastrophic death and, and disappearance of our species that we're cruising towards. And so we got about 30 years to figure it out. Uh, if we don't figure it out in 30 years, we will see the highest level of suffering ever measured in human history as we collapse to our end point. And if that's our path, let's hold on to this moment too for that, is that we need to be non-empathic non-emotional about the, the demise of our species as well. And we need to know that at that point, we're just one giant fish jumping into the talons of a bigger eagle that we can't see yet. And so we don't need to be overly dramatic about the end of our species or this, this sixth extinction. It's okay. It's our path. Mother Earth saw it coming. And she's recovered from, from massive extinctions before. 
and life just explodes right back. And so we should be in no question of, uh, of the good stuff on the other side. But if in the next 30 years you guys start really being vulnerable enough to your whole communities and really seeking more hand-holding in your life, we're going to freaking create a new society. And uh, I'm very excited to bring more stuff to you guys, too, for what my, my tribe is doing back in the States and around the world now. We have a whole team of thinkers that are going to keep bringing stuff to you guys. So Rich and I, I think, are going to have an opportunity to roll out one of the biggest stories of human history uh, in these next couple months as we, we start to tell a story about the rise and fall of empire and we, we're going to tell a story about what are the patterns of human behavior that need to be destructed because not only have each of us constructed a story, our societies and our empires have constructed a story that is keeping us from our fullest capacity to become one and to become one species that would be a quorum and would high, act at an extremely high intelligence level that's literally never been witnessed before. And we will connect to alien species and we will connect to all kinds of things in this universe, physical and non-physical, through a, an actual quorum event when seven billion people become one and are willing to share everything. Most of all, love and whatever that is. And so I'm honored to be among you. Can't wait for the next chapters to unfold. Yeah. Boom. Right? That guy just never disappoints. So cool. Such a blessing to be able to share his powerful message with all you guys here today. Hope you guys enjoyed it. For even more on Dr. Bush, check the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. Uh, go to his website, zachbushmd.com. And I would also suggest visiting farmersfootprint.us where you can watch the first installment of his docu-series and learn more about the Farmer's Footprint mission and should you be so moved, uh, contribute to the cause. Again, I want to thank everyone who attended our retreat in Italy for collectively raising $81,000 for that project. You guys are amazing. And finally, let Zach know how this one landed for you by sharing your thoughts with him directly on Twitter at Dr. Zach Bush or on Instagram at Zach Bush MD. If you want to support the work we do here on the podcast, just tell your friends about your favorite episode or about the show in general. Share what you're listening to on social media. Take a screen grab, tag me. I like to retweet that stuff or share it on Instagram. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to this or watch it. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you can support our work on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. Great appreciation to everybody who helped put on this show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music. My stepson, Tyler Pyatt, who handled the audio engineering in Italy to record this, to capture it. Uh, Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin. There was no video this time, but hey, Blake's with me today doing audio engineering work. So many thanks to you guys nonetheless. Uh, Jessica Miranda for graphics, DK for advertiser relationships, uh, Leah Morasevich for photographs 
of this episode in Italy. And theme music is always by Analemma. Appreciate you guys. I love you. Without you guys, I'm nothing. I will see you back here next week with a great conversation with my friend, the actor, Titus Welliver. He's one of those guys. You see him and you're like, that guy. This guy's been in everything. You're like, I don't know if I know his name, but he's that guy. You probably know him from Bosch. Uh, the TV series on Amazon. He's a great dude. We had a great conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. So stay tuned. Until then, as Dr. Bush says, pain can be a great teacher. Become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Namaste.